Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. We've moved into the segue of of social media. That's actually really been a big strategy of mine throughout my entire research project, engaging what we call citizen scientists, which are basically members of the public who are interested in science and getting them to come and be involved. And my project was called Turtles in Trouble, and I had a social media page, I had a Facebook page. I would put up pictures of the sea turtles and the stuff that we would pull out of their guts. And then on top of that, once a month, I would have anywhere between eight to 10 people come and join me. This was through Earthwatch at the time. who would come and join me for the day, and we'd start off with a mini lecture to give them a bit of background about what we were doing. And then they'd join me and they would help me with the necropsy. So they'd physically see what the stuff was that we were pulling out of the sea turtles. And then we'd finish the day by going down to the local beach and doing a beach survey and basically cleaning up all the debris, analyzing what we found. And it was such an eye opener and a real, I think, just almost a lightning bolt moment for a lot of these people because they were seeing it in a real time, you know, like they were seeing the stuff that was being pulled out of the turtle. They actually physically helped for that to happen. And then they went out to the beach and they could see the stuff that they were finding on the beach reflecting what was being found in the turtles or alternatively seeing the stuff that's being pulled out of the turtles and knowing that that's stuff that they have in their own life, you know, because most of the debris that we're pulling out is consumer-based waste. You know, it's, it's not like it's one particular kind of manufacturer that sea turtles are, are targeting. It's plastic bags, it's takeaway containers, it's plastic bottle caps, it's all of those things that we use in our day-to-day environment. And what I inadvertently did, because I, I did this probably, I, I started that in around 2000 and six, I think, is when I first started doing my Scientists for a Day programs. And I ran that for about 10 years um, to about 2016. And what I inadvertently did is I created a small army of very passionate people who had taken away this lesson and then sort of, you know, she told two friends and they told two friends and forever and forever and forever. And it was a real ground movement. This whole marine debris thing didn't come from the top. This has really come from the people because of opportunities like that, where they've been able to see, either physically see it, like being involved in a a citizen scientist for a day program, or like with social media, where people can actually see what's happening and then 
reflect upon that and feel, you know, this is something that needs to be done. So I've always been very committed about making sure that I communicate my science to the general public because I feel that people need to be brought on the journey and that this marine debris thing is a perfect example of that. And I was very conscious right from the very beginning to speak to the media, to communicate with, you know, I go and give talks. I have given talks everywhere, you know, you, you know, at schools and community halls, uh, you know, old folks' homes, you name it. You act like I was a bit of a, a tart for saying, you want me to come and talk? I'll come and talk. No worries. I'll talk. <laughs> you sound like us. And, and look, that's, that's the whole idea of this podcast is actually getting the story. Uh, like, because obviously as a, as a human race, we're storytellers and story listeners, and and it's one thing to publish a, a, a journal paper that uh, a few scientists will, will read, but obviously we're far more interested in reaching out to a, a wider audience and getting the, getting to the detail of, of some of the um, studies in particular, the methods, the results, what your perspectives are. That's all the all the things that wouldn't necessarily come up in a uh, a journal uh, paper. And what we're finding is, like, in the absence of anyone else doing this, because. When, when we were looked at starting this podcast, we did a quick look and I listened to a lot of podcasts. There wasn't really anyone talking about what we're talking about. Mm. And then this issue that, uh, we're talking about now in terms of marine debris and, and ingestion by sea turtles in particular, it doesn't get a huge amount of, I guess, airtime, oh, really. Look, I don't know. I don't know. But at least, at least, at least up, up until the last couple of years. Let's face yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. No, no. And look, because- let's face it. Who, who's, who's, who's driving that? It's, it's scientists. It's science communicators. Uh, and it's, I guess, a whole bunch of groups. I mean, how many presentations have we done and quoted Kathy's work? Oh, you know, that's exactly and, like. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. And, uh, 30% of um, Moreton Bay turtles are dying directly as a result of plastic congestion. And everyone's. Oh, and that's the know, thing so. about, that's the thing about telling a story. It needs to be backed up with sound data. That's and like, right. uh, and yeah. like uh, we've talked about many times, unless you've got data, you, you're just someone with an opinion. And often we don't actually have a very good understanding of the issue. Like Kathy's reference to the 2003, 2004 sort of period where. You know, even scientists, marine scientists, didn't think plastic ingestion was a problem in sea turtles. And then Kathy's like, "Well, I'm going to see if if that's right or not." And lo and behold, it's yeah, plastic ingestion is a major issue. It's causing the death of thirty percent of of turtles washing up in Moreton Bay, which I I still am staggered with that number. And that's yeah. why I, I I refer to it because people people not might not realise if they're from overseas, like Moreton Bay. Let's face it, it's actually a fairly pristine environment as well. It's not Hong Kong Harbour. It's not uh, it's not the Philippines. It's not uh, Bali. It's downstream of, uh, of Brisbane, which is a as a city. Um, but it's not a it's not it's not a massive city. And you'd think, ah, oh, Morton Bay surely wouldn't have a plastic problem. Surely sea turtles swimming around in that would be fine. But look, based on Cathy uh, science, it's absolutely not correct. Plastic is a major issue in Morton Bay. I've got two questions, Cathy. Was there social media back in 2003 and four? And if so, what, 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 what was the platform? What would it be? MySpace? That like, wasn't what, quite, it wasn't quite that bad, fortunately. So it was, it was literally when Facebook was just kind of coming into its own. Okay. And the reason I embraced the platform, because at the time we wanted to have some way that we could communicate our science to the broader public. And yep. the initial thought back then was, well, let's make a web page. 
the quotes that I was getting for making yeah, a wedding. Back then would have been 20 or 30 grand. It was 30 grand. That yeah. was literally the quote. Wow. And I was like, I haven't got that kind of money. Like I haven't got that kind of money to create a 30 grand web page. Forget it. And then of course, you know, some of my students were starting to use Facebook and they said, well, why don't we create a Facebook page? And then we can share what we're finding and it's also the really great thing about it. A web page is, is, is just outwards, right? A, yeah. a web page, there's no two-way communication. A web page just says, here it is, take it or leave it. You can't communicate on it. With social media and with Facebook in particular, we had that ability to have that conversation with people as well. So we could put stuff up. If people had questions, we could respond to that. We could also get people sending us photos of things. And I guess... Where that's really come into its own is my other project, which is called Project Manta, which we might be able to talk about another day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we might have to. <laughs> it's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Project Manta is about identifying. So we, we are soliciting photographs from the general public to get the belly shots of manta rays because mm. it's like a fingerprint. And so we use that spot and dot pattern to identify individuals from one another. And so both Project Manta and Turtles in Trouble were sort of being launched around the same time. And for Project Manta in particular was amazing. I think we have something like 19,000 followers and that's completely organic. Like we, cause we're not, you know, we, there's no way in hell we're going to pay anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dear, ask Pete about that. He's got thousands of followers who just pays for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I, I, I agree with you. We, I, uh, and when I was obviously stalking you on the internet and re- looking at all your articles, you've got a, a huge collection of research papers on manta rays. So I, I really think we are going to have to uh, have uh, a discussion uh, on oh, another podcast. Manta, I love a good manta ray. But, but, but we will have to make that as another podcast well, well, can we episode. go back to more I've got two questions my yeah, second sorry, question yeah, sorry, yeah, the second question was in regards to the feeding habits of the more mature turtles because one of the things that we talk about and, and, and bang on about is you know where is the marine debris coming from but where is it also going and there's a bit of research out there to say what roughly 96% of plastic actually sinks to the bottom of the ocean a lot of media attention on surface cleaning up. Like there's a lot of the buoyant slants of this world out there trying to mop up the problem. But we know through stormwater runoff, we know that majority of it is actually sinking. So what are the, you know, what are the feeding habits of, of the more mature turtles? Well, you know, are they diving down to, to, to get this plastic? What type of plastic is it? Because, you know, there's this real misconception out there. If we clean up the surface, we're all good. Yeah, no, um, but as we all know, so could you just uh, tell us about, you know, where they're getting the plastic from, how deep, whereabouts, etc. Yeah, so sea turtles feed throughout the entire water column. So, of course, if they're feeding on jellyfish and stuff like that, that's midwater. But if they're grazing on the algae or the seagrass, then, of course, then they're moving down to the bottom. And each of the different sea turtles have different things that they feed upon. So you've got your greens with seagrass, the, the, the vegetarians of the group, although they will eat the jellyfish, as I said, just like crack to them. Um, we've also got the hawksbill turtles. So hawksbills are omnivores, so they'll feed on seagrass, but they'll also feed on things like soft corals and jellyfish again. And then you've got your loggerheads, which are really the carnivores of the group. And so the loggerheads are feeding on things like crabs and bivalves, so like clams and things like that. But again, they'll also feed on jellyfish. So that means they're really feeding through the entire water column. 
Now, the sea turtles can be exposed to marine debris either through primary or secondary ingestion. So primary ingestion means that they've actually eaten that piece of plastic thinking that it's something that they should be eating. Secondary ingestion is where the thing that they've eaten yeah. has eaten the plastic. And so then they eat that thing, that thing gets digested, but then the rest of the plastic remains behind. So you're right in saying that the debris isn't all necessarily on the surface. However, there's a large percentage of these polymers that are actually either positively buoyant or neutrally buoyant yeah. in salt water. And certainly, because we did a lot of this, we actually did buoyancy tests of the debris we were pulling out of the guts of the sea turtles. And the reality is is something like, don't exactly quote me on this, but it's something around 80%, yeah, <laughs> around 80% of this stuff we were finding in the guts, the turtles were either neutrally or positively buoyant. So they, they seem to be picking it up more in the water column if they're eating it as, as a primary thing. And so neutrally buoyant, well, that, that tends to be in the what, top couple of meters of- No, or? neutrally buoyant means they can sort of sit anywhere in the water column. Okay, so, so, ne- so okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to negatively buoyant, which is which going to is be sinking sitting, and then yeah. positive, it's floating. Yeah, 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 cool. yeah. So negatively buoyant is more likely that even if it did settle on the bottom, if a current came along, it would bring it back up into the water column again. Yeah. So that actually leads us to what happens when the sea turtles consume marine debris. So they remember I talked about this thing called gut impaction. Okay, yep. so they've got the the downward facing spines in their throat, which prevents them from being able to regurgitate. And then if it doesn't go out the back end, it ends up getting stuck. And when it gets stuck, they get this thing called gut impaction. And gut impaction is like the worst kind of constipation you could possibly imagine. They're really backed up. Just trying to imagine that. Yeah, don't. It's not very pleasant. Well, they should all be, every listener, imagine that. Carry on. Yeah. But also, also, imagine not being able to tell anyone. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I'm constipated and I can't tell the pharmacist or the. Yeah. Uh, okay. yeah. And yeah. I'm, out, I'm out in the middle of the ocean and no one's listening anyway. No, exactly. <laughs> so, what happens is the gut then starts to become necritic or dies. And so, the stuff that's trapped in there, so there's going to be plastic in there, but it's not this like pristine plastic. There's going to be organic material associated with that as well, you know, a mix of things. And because the gut itself is no longer having an ability to digest what's in there because the gut itself has died off, it's got become necritic, the organic material that's left behind now starts to decompose. And that decomposition process creates gases. And that gas either gets stuck in the gastrointestinal system yeah. or can move out into the body cavity. And as soon as that happens, the animal then becomes positively buoyant and it becomes a floater, which we were talking about at the start of the show. Um, and so the animals then are forced to be at the surface. They can no longer duck dive down to feed. To get food, yeah. They can't duck dive down to get out of the way of boats, for example. Sea turtles normally sleep on the bottom, so they normally will come and take a breath and then they'll go and go down to the bottom and wedge themselves under a little ledge and they'll stay and sleep there for up to two hours before they come back up to the surface to breathe again. So they can't even do that. They're basically floating around on the surface and potentially being picked off as prey as well. And it's a really horrible, slow way to die. So the animals are basically starving to death 
they're also dehydrated because the area of the gut that absorbs water is at the very end of the gut and that area is now blocked so they haven't got anything moving through so they're as well as starving they're also dehydrated severely dehydrated as well despite being in this in the water and because the reptiles they have an innate ability to actually survive quite a long time without feeding. So for them to actually finally die of starvation can take up to two months before they finally wow. pass away. So it's a really, and that entire time they'll be extremely uncomfortable. They'll be dehydrated. A bloody slow death is what you're It's saying. a bloody yeah, horrible yeah, slow yeah. death. It's a horrible way to die. And so usually when we see the animals finally washing up on shore, it's often too late because yeah. you know by the time they've washed up they've been floating around for a really long time the gut itself has actually died off so you know even if you did flush the stuff out the gut itself is no longer functioning so yeah so as i said it's a really horrible way to die for these animals and they can sort of drift from quite some time and that was one of the other questions we asked was where are they getting the debris and I think we talked a little, you know, you, you were mentioning that before, you know, where's this debris coming from that they're interacting with? We actually did some back drift models, which is the work. So CSIRO has got this really cool program where you can put in a GPS coordinate and, and certain days and it'll backtrack where that thing. So it was all designed for oil spills. So it backtracks where that thing potentially originated from. And it was designed for oil spills because oil would wash up and they needed to figure out where it was coming from, you know, a vessel that may have been out, out to sea and dump something. And so we did, we used that technology and we looked at where the sea turtles are potentially interacting with the, with the debris. And it turns out that they're interacting with the debris no further than 250 kilometers away from where the animal actually washed up on the beach. So that means that it's really quite local. The reason we did this is because we were getting a lot of people saying, oh, it's all the debris that's coming from China. Bali. You know, it's, yeah, it's coming 100%. from Bali. It's all coming from, it's coming from somewhere else. It's not yeah. our, it's not our, our problem. fault. It, somebody else is making the problem. So that's sort of why that spurred that question of where, is, where are they interacting with it? And it basically turned out it's our rubbish. They're interacting with the stuff that's coming locally from our own Australian shores. So we can't blame somebody else for it. It's our own doing that what we're seeing with the sea turtles here. So just to confirm, so whilst these sea turtles can obviously travel significant distances, you're saying when, when they've got plastic ingestion and subsequently die from that plastic ingestion, that plastic is generally from Australia if it's washing up on an Australian beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's an, if it washes up on an Australian beach, they'll have interacted with that debris within Australian international exclusion zone. <laughs> and, and just to confirm, what, what debris are we talking about? So there's a preference for balloons and plastic bags, but you're, mm -hmm. you're indicating that there's a real diversity of plastic material that you see. I'm, I'm going to do a show and tell. Oh, well, that's, that's <laughs> not very good because it's a podcast, but anyway, I'm going to have a look. I can, I can describe it. So I've got a container here with debris that's been removed from a sea turtle. And this Brad, is we'll, one we'll put this in our show notes. We need a photo of this, but yeah, yeah, yeah. give us a look. <laughs> oh, wow. So this is oh, from one goodness. single sea turtle. Oh, no. And in amongst this, we've got, of course, your plastic bags. This orange thing is a rim of a balloon. You know, where, the, yeah, where you yeah. blow it up. There's some packing twine. She's cigarette butts. Holly wrappers, cigarette butts. You know, the packing tape that you put, the pallet straps? Oh, that yeah, 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 put yeah, on, yeah, yeah. Yep, on the pallets. 
lots of different kinds of twine. So a range of different items, you know, just random bits of hard stuff. So lots of different items that these animals are consuming. But if, even from here, you can see mainly it's these film-like plastics, right? That yeah. these are the things that they're targeting. There is other things in amongst well, them. Because it, and it makes stuff. sense. If they, if, if, if jellyfish is their crack, a plastic bag is the next best thing. Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. Know. Visually. So again, okay, so that's what we were asking. What is this stimulating these animals to feed on this? And the work that we did, we found, yes, definitely visually. So things like color. We also did more in-depth analysis of the actual visual system of the sea turtles. And it was color, but also the contrast to the background, the texture of the actual material itself, um, how flexible it was. There was a whole bunch of different factors that confused or tricked the sea turtle into consuming it because it was a whole bunch of different visual cues that these animals were getting. But the other thing, and this is just some recent work that's just come out in the last year or so, is it appears they also are being tricked through smell as well. So the, and, and we, know, we do know that marine debris grows a type of biofilm on it and that biofilm releases a scent that is known to confuse seabirds. So this was first done with seabirds. The seabirds will actually find their prey, not only visually, but they also are looking for a particular scent in the ocean. And this scent not only is <laughs> confusing the birds to consume marine debris, because it smells the same because of the biofilm, but apparently it's doing similar sort of thing for the sea turtles. So well. it looks like crack and it smells like crack is what you say. So let's eat it. Oh. <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I'm just I'm conscious of time, but I, I feel as though I could ask questions all day. And like Kathy's coming here. back on the show, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. You, <laughs> you need your own show, Kathy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just to confirm that the items that you talked about before, you know, the plastics, the twines, the the plastic caps, and whatever, the cigarette butts, all of these items sound like they essentially have washed into Morton Bay from land as opposed to being directly deposited or from commercial fishing nets or something Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. So 80% of the debris that you find is land-based generated. So, yeah, again, about that whole finger-pointing thing, you can't point your fingers at the ships that are out there and saying it's their fault, they're the ones that are doing it. No, it's coming from the mainlands. And the thing is, is that the debris that leaves our coastline potentially can end up on the coastline of the Galapagos. Mm. You know, like there's, there is great connectivity between our ocean basins. And so it's 
it's truly a global problem. So to, it's, it's, it's one of those things that we call a wicked problem. Yeah. And the reason it's a wicked problem is because it's quite complex. It involves a whole bunch of different people and it's affecting people at a whole bunch of different levels. And it's all about waste management, right? Like that's when we come down to the bare bones of it, that's what it's about. It's about waste management. Mm. And some places in the world are very fortunate to have the ability to deal with waste management in a real way. Um, whereas other places in the world in developing countries in particular, waste management is a big problem. And this leads me to the research that I've started doing in Nepal, which seems like a weird place for somebody who works on sea turtles to start doing work. But the reason I started work in Nepal is because there was a recent paper that showed that 10 of the world's rivers, there's 10 rivers in the world that produce 80% of the debris that's coming into the world's oceans. And one of those is the Ganges. Mm. And the, the start of the Ganges is up in the Himalaya mountains in Nepal. And so I've started working with the, the Nepalese people to look at what's happening with debris, with waste management, particularly in these rural areas up in the mountains. And it's a real eye-opener. Here in Australia, we do not realize how fortunate we are. We have capacity to deal with our waste. In places like Nepal... Well, that's... that's, that's, um, that's hmm. We don't do a very good bloody job of it, but I understand what you're saying, Kathy. Well, you know, I know, uh, but you think that we don't until you go and see some. Yeah, else. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. So in Nepal, there is no such thing as a centralized garbage collector. There's no such thing as that. Every individual person is responsible for their own waste. Um, and so that means that things either are burnt or buried, really, and just in a local scenario. Food waste are often fed to cattle and, and other things, or they're ultimately just buried in the ground. Now, in the old days in Nepal, this wasn't a big problem because, again, back to that story, it used to be mostly organic things, right? It was mostly organic materials. Yeah. But now there's a whole bunch of these single-use plastics that are around. You know, in the old days, they were eating an apple or something. They could toss it at the side of the road. It yeah. didn't matter because it was going to degrade, right? Now we've got all these single-use plastics. You've got Mentos Think of bags, you've Mentos, got, yeah, yeah. you know, biscuits, noodles, uh, you know, lolly wrappers, and and the thing is, is this is not a, a particularly well-off nation, and so most of the people there can only afford like a single use of things. That whole single-wrapped mm. industry has boomed in countries like Nepal, and it's not just yeah. Nepal, but all these other countries, because they just haven't got the you know they can't afford the whole big thing so they have these little single packets but they've got no ability to deal with that plastic and with nepal what happens is is that they either burn it or they wait until the rainy season and they basically put it in the in the streams and it all washes down and then it ultimately ends out into the oceans so i know that was a bit of a digress but the reason that no, I wanted, <laughs> the reason i wanted to tell you to to highlight that is that again this is a global problem. It's a wicked problem that has a lots of layers to it. It has issues around also manufacturing, you know, mm -hmm. like the idea that there's very much a one-way street at the moment. So things get made, it goes to the consumers, and then it just disappears out into the environment or into, you know, landfill, which is still the environment. It's just a, it's just a designated part of the environment. We say that this is where rubbish is going. 
And so we need to be talking about solutions that break that chain, right? Mm. Like, so if you're in, and being responsible from that manufacturer's level of, well, if I'm going to make this, I have to be responsible for getting that back and then, you know, removing the elements that are required to then make that next thing, as opposed to just going, I've made it, I don't need to worry about anything mm. else now. And that's called a circular economy. Mm. And, and there's a lot of this certainly happening in Europe, because the governments in Europe have been very vocal about saying, all right, enough is enough. As producers of these materials, you need to be responsible for what happens to it at the end of its life. So now they're having to look at things like the amount of packaging that they use and et cetera, et cetera. Australia hasn't quite gotten on board with that yet, which is a bit of a shame. I know when I have my international students coming to Australia, they're quite surprised by the lack of embracing around recycling and, and those sorts of things. And, and of course, recycling is not the ultimate answer. It's, it's, no, we it's, can't recycle our way no, out of this. No, we cannot recycle our way out no. of this. And we cannot clean a beach out of our, our way out no. of this either. No. There's so many layers, as you said. Yeah, exactly. Because if you just send out squads of people cleaning beaches every day. We'll be there for the rest of our time. Well, you're, it's mopping up and leaving the tap running. You yeah, know, that's basically what's happening. You're, you're so. seeing to the, the choir there. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a really good point. We're, we, we try and be a solution-based podcast and, and you know, uh, we, we talk to amazing people like yourself. So for the listeners out there, you know, when they're thinking about turtles, I mean, what, what are some take-home messages for anyone sitting on their couch right now thinking, well, how can I help the turtles? Give us your 101 on, on, on what you'd say to the general public and on, on how we can best help these turtles and, and help this issue. So from a personal perspective, just think about the things that you're purchasing, right? You know, so don't be purchasing those items that are overly packaged, for example. Like if you have an option in a shop, which you always do of multiple different items, and they're basically equivalent, have a look at the packaging that they're in. Is it primarily cardboard or is it like a plastic bubble wrap within another plastic bubble wrap surrounded in saran wrap and then something else? Have a look at that and make some choices around that because I have actually had the opportunity to talk to CEOs of packaging companies and he said, basically, we are really responsive. If, if it turns out that a company is even possibly going to lose a little bit of shareholder or money. It's called it money. money, basically yeah. money. Yes, yeah. yeah, so if they're going to lose any little bit of money, they will make changes almost immediately to what that is. Supply so you do and have demand. I think that's supply cool, and demand. It? So you do have power as a consumer in that kind of way. Um, the other thing, of course, is just all your basic things. You know, don't accept single-use bottles. Don't accept single-use coffee cups. Bring straws. You know, yeah. bring it. Bring a reusable item with you all the time. I've got you know my bag's relatively big because I've got like a straw in there. I've got cutlery in there. <laughs> and I carry a bag. You know, I carry all that stuff around with me, and that's very much from an individual perspective. So that's good because that means that you can do something in your day-to-day life that can help make some decisions around helping the situation. From a broader perspective, though, you can also be involved in things like Clean Up Australia Day. So you're actively on the ground, helping to remove this stuff from the environment and spreading the word as well. The other way is, of course, is to engage with the politicians. If you make them know that this is something you're passionate about, that's where real change will actually happen. And this is actually a nice segue to tell the end of my story. So <laughs> we love a good segue. It's my favorite word. <laughs> 
so as I said, when I started back in 2003, 2004, it was not really thought of as being a problem. It was mm-hmm. marine debris wasn't an issue. Didn't even, they thought, well, even if you ate it, it wasn't, even if the animals ate it, it didn't matter. It was just going to go through. It wasn't going to be an issue. Fast forward after having engaged all those citizen scientists, after being very vocal and, you know, making sure that my science got out there to the general public, surprise, surprise, we ended up getting a plastic bag ban in 2018. And then on top of that, the container deposit scheme came in. And quite honestly, if you had, and and I was actually lobbied by the Queensland government to come in in a stakeholder group to to make statements about my research and the work that we had been doing. And while it certainly wasn't the only thing that helped push it over the line, it certainly was a strong factor because the data was there. It's like what you were talking about before. You need to have that data to back up those claims. And you can be as passionate as you like, but the reality is without that data, it's very difficult for, for anything to get pushed through. And so the really beautiful happy end to this particular story by 2018 we had plastic bag bans we had the container deposit scheme and then we've also got microplastics also being banned and a balloon ban as well and if you had asked me back in 2000 maybe even in 2006 when I really felt that this was going to be a big problem if you had asked me in 2006 that this would be an outcome within 10 years I would have laughed at you because I would have said, no way, nobody cares. It's not on the political agenda. Half the people don't think it's an issue. There's no way it's going to be, you know, it's going to be changed. And it has, you know, we've made some really significant changes for good within Australia. I think almost all of the states, except for maybe bar one, now have plastic bag bans. So it's really great. And then the research that we've done here in Australia has gone internationally as well. Like the, our, the work that we've done here has been used to provide evidence for bans in other places in the world too. So, yeah. And Kathy, just a question on that. Have you or others noticed that these bans, these plastic bag bans and other sort of uh, initiatives, have you noticed a significant reduction in the rates of I guess, plastic ingestion and subsequent die-off of sea turtles? Yeah, so that's the stage I'm at right now, right? So 2018 is not that long ago. And you got to no. remember yeah. that, that, you know, that's only two years ago. And you got to remember there's still a lot of stuff in the environment right now. Mm. Yeah. So that's the stage I'm at right now. So I'm still doing turtle necropsies. Um, I've set up a new lab. I'm up in Harvey Bay now instead of down in Morton Bay. And we're continuing on the work that we've been doing for the last 10 years. So fingers crossed, what I'm hoping to see is that I'll no longer have to do it because there won't be enough turtles with debris in it <laughs> to justify me having to rummage through their guts anymore. <laughs> well, that's my next question. Like, the, obviously, the research is still out, so you haven't obviously had the time and, and resources to sort of determine whether these initiatives are having a significant impact. But you've been looking at this issue for a long time and doing necropsies on sea turtles and seeing the the suffering and disease and other sort of ailments that they've obviously had to endure. Are you optimistic? Are you hopeful that uh, there is light at the end of this tunnel? My default position is optimism. I think it's probably a good thing because particularly on this topic, if I was another kind of person, I think I probably would have curled up in the fetal position under my desk and (laughs) not been able to do anything anymore. Um, But I am an optimistic person. And I think even just 
that story about how we've had legislative change, um, not only just here in Queensland, but also across Australia, shows that we can make an impact. You know, it, it, as long as we're communicating our science, as long as we're communicating with what's going out there, there's enough passionate people out there to make a difference. So I am extremely optimistic. Again, the numbers are not in yet. This is sort of a little one of those little gut feelings at the moment. I'm feeling like I'm not seeing as many turtles come across my tables with uh, debris in their guts as I was seeing in the early days. As I said, that still needs to be quantified in a, an appropriate way. As far as the, you know, we also do regular beach cleanups, for example, and, and we're seeing less things as well. And we're starting to see a combination of different things too. So yeah, so I am extremely optimistic. Um, that's, that is my default position because if I wasn't optimistic, um, I don't think I would bother doing this job. <laughs> so there's obviously been some initiatives already around plastic bag bans and container deposit schemes, et cetera. What else needs to change not just from a, a personal consumer perspective but what if you if you had the ear of say our prime minister scott morrison what would you want to see the federal and state governments do in australia to actually really go a long way to addressing this issue of plastic ingestion of of turtles and other species i would really want the burden of responsibility to be taken off the shoulder of the consumers consumers can only do so much we can only do so much as far as our choices are made, but I don't know if anyone's seen those, you know, plastic, plastic free July. Mm. The reason that people can't do that easily is because it's really hard. Even if you decided you wanted to live a plastic free lifestyle, it's virtually impossible. Yep. So that means that this burden of responsibility for this issue needs to be removed from the shoulders of the consumers and placed squarely onto the shoulders of the manufacturers and, of course, the governments who then make the rules that you know, tell the manufacturers what they can and cannot do. And it also can't be a self-regulated thing. The free market is not going to pick yeah, this up. This is not coffee gonna, shops. This no, is, this is no. Not, no, this is not a free market issue. This is something that needs to have a combination of working with the with the industry as well as working with the government. And I've got a nice little story about this. So when the whole plastic bag ban was coming into play, again, I was on another one of these committees and they had the big grocery companies in the room at the same time when we were talking about the plastic bag ban. And the reality was, is that they said, listen, as far as we're concerned, not providing our customers plastic bags for our bottom line is actually a good thing because then we're saving money, right? So from their perspective, it was a good thing. But they were not going to be the one because, you know, there's yeah, three yeah, big com competitors, right? It's like, I'm not going to be the company that says to my customers, sorry, you're not getting plastic bags because then they're going to go to the other company, right? So instead, in this particular scenario, for this to actually have to work, the bad guy had to be the government. The government had to come in and say, nope, we're abandoning this. It's across the board. Everybody has to be on the same playing field. And that's the role that government has to play because from a free market perspective, they're not going to make these kind of decisions if it looks like they're possibly going to be losing any money whatsoever. It needs to be done together. You can't just expect the, the industry to be able to deal with it itself. 
My lord, this has been a, a an amazing chat. <laughs> I feel as though we could talk. Honestly, Kathy, I, I really do believe you need your own podcast series. Well, one hundred percent, Kathy. This is it. Well, we 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 yeah, we talk to a lot of people, and you're very very excellent in the way that you convey oh. your science. And we we ride off your coattails. We are out there in the community. We present information yep. along with your data. And if you're not doing the great work that you're doing, we can't be out there trying to. Take Tell your story or, or communicate your story. So personally, I just want to say thanks. I mean, this has been the most casual podcast we've ever done for the last time. I'm sitting on a couch in my home in New Zealand. Um, you don't even want to see what I'm wearing. But anyway, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to us today. Uh, it's been fantastic, guys. Thanks for that. And, and look, uh, Kathy, well done on such incredible research. It's yeah. an incredible body of work that you've done. And we haven't even touched on so many other aspects of your research, particularly the manta rays and the, the breakdown of uh, plastics by krill etc but uh, look obviously we're gonna have to get you on again but look you're coming back th- thank you so much for your time today it's been such a wonderful chat uh, i've learned so much and i feel uh even more inspired than i was beforehand so uh, all i can say is just thanks again for being on our show and, and well done on such incredible work that you do and you continue to do and i cannot wait to see what you achieve uh, in the future thank you so much guys and uh I look forward to having a chat again. (laughs) (laughs) That that means yes, Brad. She's coming back. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.